Blog Talk Radio. I'm Marcia Joyner, host of Betrayed by Hospice, brought to you in coordination with our producer, Marty Oakley. I want to share with you a place that you can visit for just a few days. Spacious private bedrooms with natural woodwork and views of surrounding gardens, a great room with a grand piano and a fireplace, fully equipped kitchen and dining room, a chapel with handcrafted stained glass art, easily accessible natural areas and gardens with a gazebo, a labyrinth, and space for visiting or contemplation. How many of you would like to sign up to visit here? Sounds lovely, doesn't it? So what is this place? It's a hospice facility that provides respite care that our guest knows all too well the end results. Their definition is, A care facility is a short-term place like two to three days for the patients to go so the caregivers can have some rest at their home or vacation. And it's covered under Medicare, so it's free. This Monday at 3 a.m., I was awake and thinking about how hospice lulls people into trusting them. And I thought of a familiar lullaby. We all know it and probably sang it to our babies. Rock-a-bye baby in the treetop, when the wind blows, the cradle will rock. When the bow breaks, the cradle will fall, and down will come baby, cradle, and all. I never really thought about the lyrics, and yet I was now consumed by them and the similarities. That lullaby is so sweet and comforting, but in the end, the limb breaks, and the baby and the cradle fall. How so like is hospice care lulling people into believing they are safe and they only want to help, and then they cut the branch and down the patient falls, except they use drugs. Tonight you will hear our guest talk about her experience with respite care. The truth, as I can witness it from my mom's tragic story, she and my dad, who was her caregiver, were tricked into going for my dad to receive care in the facility, and they would take care of mom during that time for just two or three days. He had a separate room while they immediately began drugging my mom. The day they were to go back home, she was in a coma because it was just her time to die. So they said, in spite of our pleas and attempts to save her, to stop the drugging and to try to move her to a hospital, we failed and she died 10 days after her arrival. So while you may come to a respite facility to receive care and take advantage of all the fluff I mentioned before, most leave in a body bag. I read to you straight off their website, and one would think, what a nice place for my loved one. But think about it. This place is for the patient, 
would they be able to utilize the kitchen? Would they admire the woodwork or gaze out the window at the gardens or play a piano or even go into the great room to hear it being played or um, admire the beautiful stained glass art? And how about that labyrinth, which is a complicated network of passages or paths in which it is difficult to find one's way out, a maze, if you will. If they could do that, they wouldn't need help. So what's all this fluff for? To tempt people to come to a beautiful place at the end of their life? It reminds me of Soylent Green, where Edward G. Robinson's character, Saul, went to be euthanized and gazed at fields of flowers and listened to Beethoven. My personal experience with my mom was each person was lying in a bed in a coma with their mouth gaping open. Some families were present, but most were not. And each person died never to return to their home. So how is it that their last chapter of their life ended alone in a place with people who don't give a hoot about them is the fluff for the patient or the family after you murder their loved ones? But if it's a respite facility for the patient and the families were not intended to be there because they would be at their own home or on vacation, how would they be enjoying this? Smoke and mirrors, lullabies with a deadly ending. And further, it states that hospice respite is not generally appropriate for patients in a nursing facility with 24-7 care. But that wasn't the case, as our guest will share this evening. We're all going to die someday. It's just a fact. And death is most often not pleasant. But people should not be drugged into a coma, rendering them unable to communicate, think, eat, drink, and die a horrible human planned death. The last days of your story should be how you choose. And I don't think anybody should be in pain if they are, but most stories that I hear, the person was not in pain. I believe everyone has a right to make decisions based on facts, not lies or omissions. Hospice should not have the right to decide it is someone's time to die because they believe their quality of life is less than desirable. I believe nurses who participate believe they are angels of mercy and that the person would be better off dead than living the way they are. Or they're just doing a job that pays them to kill people or they don't know any better, and they're blind to the fact that someone is sitting up, eating, drinking, and talking one day, and the next in a coma after receiving morphine, Ativan, whatever the toxic cocktail of the day is. Do they really see the rapid decline and think, oh, it's just their time? I can't begin to know or understand how they can either be ignorant, cruel, or just plain don't care, and they do it day in, day out. And the situations where family members are complicit because they don't want to be bothered caring for the person or they want their inheritance, well, there's a place for them in the afterlife, and their actions are not forgivable, in my opinion. And I think if someone is really sick and dying from cancer and is really in pain, a doctor or nurse should say, we're going to give you something to ease your pain, like morphine, in a small dose, but tell them what will really happen, that they'll be sleeping, they may not be able to communicate, they may stop eating and drinking. Tell them what the side effects are. Be honest about what will happen and let people make decisions for themselves. Our loved ones didn't go to the doctor and say, I want to die for whatever reason, so please euthanize me. But that's what's happening in hospice. 
the hospice staff are trained to manipulate the patient and family saying whatever they think they want to hear to get the enroll. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about hospice promises for enrollment, and I want to briefly touch on a couple because it is pertinent to our guest story, a shower. You would think that is the holy grail because so many are tricked into signing up because they just want a shower. Help with medication that somehow miraculously they stop giving regular medication and add their own toxic drug de jour without knowledge or consent. Want to know more of the lies hospice tells and true life stories? Michelle Young Dewars, a former hospice respiratory therapist, wrote Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice, which shares stories about enrollment quotas, promises made but not kept, and inside the doors and what really happens. The book unveils the truth that hospice does not want you to know. Stealth Euthanasia Healthcare Tyranny was written by Ron Panzer, a hospice nurse whistleblower, and you can download that for free. HaloVoice.org has a useful site that you can go to and get information about your loved one and how to help them. There's a Facebook group, Murdered by Hospice, which is a group of people, like my guest tonight is a member of, and they're very supportive of each other. And in regards to COVID and the medical facilities, which is also pertinent to Deborah's story tonight, in December 2005, HHS passed Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act, which is called a PREP Act, and it shields those fighting a pandemic from lawsuits. It was designed to encourage production of emergency vaccines during an epidemic by granting legal immunity to drug developers. However, the current administration updated this act to provide immunity from liability for nursing homes, hospitals, and assisted living. You can't blame them if your loved one dies while under their care. They're neglected, overdosed, they fall, they're ignored. It's COVID's fault. More than 100,000 residents of nursing homes and senior living facilities have died from COVID, and many who did not die from COVID, died in those facilities. This act gives total immunity from any lawsuit. Fulton J. Sheen said it best, the refusal to take sides on great moral issues is in itself a decision. It is a silent acquiescence to evil. The tragedy of our time is those who still believe in honesty, lack fire, and conviction while those who believe in dishonesty are full of passionate conviction. Which will you be? We choose speaking up on this program. Always remember, knowledge is power. Our guest speaker tonight, Deborah Williams, is going to share with us the story about her mother-in-law, Shirley Williams, who was 80 when her death was hastened in a respite for a tune-up in October the 11th, 2015, in approximately 15 hours, she was gone. Her father-in-law, Dale Stewart, was 88 and died on July the 2nd, 2020, during the COVID, in respite because he wanted a shower. Again, remember when people get old, oftentimes they may be sick, 
But that does not give anyone the right to say it's time for this person to die. And the quickness of their death, once the cocktail is started, is quite telling. Listen as Deborah tells the facts and see if you think they were just honest mistakes. Deborah, I'd like to turn it over to you and let you tell your tragic stories of your in-laws. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, uh, good evening to everyone. And, uh, again, uh, thank you, uh, Marcia, for having this program and for having me on Um I've been waiting to tell my story to some. I tell it every time I get the opportunity, but uh, this uh, this audience, I, again, I really appreciate it. Um, we we we've tried and tried to go legal routes and everything else, and and again came against a brick wall. So I appreciate the opportunity. Um, but uh, to start off, um, um, I had told Marcia that um, we've actually been dealing with different hospice mem- family members in hospice for approximately 35 years, and um, the majority of them are the typical uh, horror stories, but these two in particular, um, with my mother-in-law who uh, went into respite care, again, what Marcia said, for a tune-up, and my father-in-law for the same reason, um, are just um, so horrific. Um, they, they need to be told to people because a lot of people think that hospice uh, respite care is just um, very innocuous, um, it's not dangerous, um, that it's just so wonderful and that it gives the families a break, and it's, it's absolutely not that. Um, but to start off with, with my mother-in-law, um, Shirley Williams, um, she was living um, in an assisted living facility for a couple of years, um, and I can honestly say the majority of her adult life she was chronically ill. Um, she had... COPD, she also had emphysema, um, but she had a good quality of life. She still was able to go to the beach, and um, she liked to uh, watch TV. That was her favorite pastime, and she loved her grandkids and having visits from her children. And um, So she still had a good quality of life, and in the assisted living, she was, um, you know, uh, always, always had a smile for somebody that would come in. She liked talking to the staff. Um, she liked to complain, um, but she, but she uh, definitely, um, you know, she she definitely was, um, you know, uh, happy in in her state. Um, and you know, she didn't go out and run marathons or anything. She stayed a lot of times in her recliner. Uh, she liked to keep her um, apartment bitterly cold, so which was atypical for an 80 year old. But um, but she did have a, a lot of life, and uh, and you know people would go and visit her all the time, and and she was happy to have that, and and you know was was doing well according to her. Um, we we commented a lot of times that my mother-in-law was the energizer bunny because she she would get like uh, congestive heart failure episodes and go to the hospital, and she always pulled through, and and uh, she always continued on, and and we honestly thought that would go on forever because she was always able to come back from whatever had happened to her. Um, uh, to, to top this off, though, with my mother-in-law, I can honestly say um, she did have um, some renal deficiencies, and so due to that fact, never, ever in her assisted living did she take any uh, opioids for pain, none whatsoever. Um, occasionally she might take, um, like, a, a, a not even, I don't know, Tylenol or Advil, but she took nothing stronger than that. Um, 
we had found and she had found herself that if she was given anything stronger than that for pain, she would be completely out of her mind for several days. So she always told everyone that she never wanted anything like that because, um, it, I mean, she literally was just out of her mind. She she uh, she just it made her sick and she just didn't want it and she really didn't need it. Um, even with her COPD and emphysema, um, she didn't. Uh, you know, she had some bone pain, hip pain, but it was nothing dramatic. That, that's basically all she had. So, um, so anyway, so she lived in this um, assisted living for, facility for several years, and um, we would go over there every Sunday and take her um, her groceries. Um, she refused to eat the food that was at the facility, so she had a small kitchenette, and she loved to eat uh, Stouffer's Sal- Salisbury steak. That was her favorite frozen meal, and she had a uh, there was a larger refrigerator in the facility that was filled with those. She loved them. And uh, so we would go over and take her. Uh, she liked orange juice, stuff like that. We would go every Sunday and take her groceries um, and also seafood. She liked to eat seafood dinner. So we would uh, go to the restaurant, get her that, and take that to her. But she typically fixed her own breakfast, um, you know, an English muffin and juice or tea. Um, and then um, she would eat TV dinner for usually for dinner. And uh, But, um, but yes, yeah, she totally refused to eat the food at the facility. Um for some reason, she had it. She was convinced that it was the same food that um, that was left over from prisons, and how oh she my. got that. I, I think she <laughs> saw uh, she saw the truck pull up to the facility, and I think it said institutional food. So for some reason, in her mind, she thought that was uh, prison food. That so we were like, no, it's not prison food. It's like schools and colleges and but she just didn't believe it so we were like okay we're not going to fight you you know you don't have to eat it um but anyways but she was you know she could get around enough to to fix herself something uh small to eat and so anyways we went over there um the uh the day before she went to the um facility the solace facility and um and she um was uh sitting on the floor of her apartment and she was just sitting there saying she wanted something to drink we asked her how she ended up there, and she said, I don't know. So we got her up in her chair, and she was talking, um, but she said she didn't feel well. So the, in the, right before we had gotten there, the, uh, the facility had called the hospice nurse to come over there to take a look at her. And uh, so the hospice nurse showed up, and, uh, and you know, my mother-in-law was talking, and, um, but she said she just didn't feel good. She was, um, I don't know, not in any pain or anything. She just was very thirsty, and, and uh, she was tired, and she wanted something. You know, she, she just wasn't feeling 100%. So the, um, so the hospice nurse talked to her and said, um, well, do you want to go? They call it Elizabeth House. Um, we live in western North Carolina, and this is one of the uh, two hospice uh, groups that are in our close proximity. And uh, so they asked her if she wanted to go over there for what Marcia said. That was the hospice nurse's words exactly, a tune-up. Um, you know, we'll, we'll take you over there and, uh, and, you know, you'll get your food and you'll be in bed and, you know, we'll make sure that your medications are doing well and, and, uh, and you know, you'll just go there for a couple of days and come back. And uh, so, you know, she didn't really complain about it. So they, they called an ambulance, an ambulance came took her over to this facility about 6 o'clock in the evening. So she got there 6 or 7 o'clock that night. 
So um, my husband and I um, followed over in our car, and we sat there and talked to her. They got her all situated. She'd taken a gown from her um, assisted living, and they'd got her dressed in her own gown. She wasn't in a hospital bed. Uh, She was just in a regular bed and was in a room by herself. And uh, so, you know, she starts in, I need the TV remote. And uh, so they went and got the remote for her. And, uh, and and brought it to her. And so when we left um, about 11 o'clock that night, she was acted fine. She was ordering everyone around. So we were like, okay, she's back to her normal self. Um, I remember a, a, like a, a guy aide came in there, and, you know, she was telling him she wanted some ice water, and, you know, she wanted another pillow, and, you know, she just basically, um, she was super hot-natured, so she wanted the air conditioner turned down. She's just totally ordering the people around. So my husband and I were like, okay, she seems fine. She'll probably be back to her apartment tomorrow at the assisted living. Um, she seems, you know, she seems fine. There's no, She doesn't act like there's anything wrong with her. So about 11 o'clock, um, you know, we told her good night, and, uh, and we went home, which was about a 20-minute drive. So... The next morning, they didn't call us overnight at all. We didn't hear one word. Before we left, we went out to the nurse's station and, uh, and told them, you know, anything comes up, call us immediately. We're not that far from here. We can come right back. And they were like, oh, yeah, you know, we don't anticipate anything. Don't, you know, we'll let you know if anything comes up, but she seems fine. So anyway, so the next morning, um, we got up and, uh, and went over there. It was about 8 o'clock in the morning. And, uh, and when we got there, um, my husband went to the nurse's station and asked how her night had been, and they said fine. And uh, so we were like, okay, but it was like a shift change. So they had new nurses coming in, and the older nurses, the ones who had been there overnight, were leaving. So we went out and sat in this, uh, the area that, um, you know, that they brag about. You know, it's, you've got a baby grand piano and a fireplace, and you look out over these lush gardens. So we were just sitting there waiting. And uh, so I don't know, about about an hour went by, and they um, they came out and said that they were changing her bedding, and they were putting, you know, that they were changing her gown, and we were like, okay, well, we'll, you know, we'll wait. When you get that done, we'll go in and see her. So um, about 30 more minutes went by, and uh, this younger girl comes out who was I don't remember if she was a nurse or an aide, but she came out and uh, and she was just ashen. And her face looked like every bit of the color had drained out of it. And um, and to add to this part of my story, before we left at 11 o'clock the night before, my husband was adamant to them to make sure that they did not give her anything for pain. Um, again, we had told everyone everywhere, and she usually would tell herself she just could not take any kind of pain medication. So my husband made sure that he told the nurses that before we had left the night before. So anyways, so fast forward, the girl comes out, and uh, she comes down the hall, and she comes to us, and she says um, that um, my mother-in-law is uh, almost is about to die. And my husband and I are like, what are you talking about? And she said, um, you need to come in her room. Um, she's imminently about to die. And we're like, I don't understand. So we go to her room, and, of course, she's, um, you know, uh, uh, imminently dying. She's, um, uh, you know, unfortunately, um, I've sat with, I think, now maybe nine different people that are passing away, and 
you know, uh, she was um, grimaced, um, her mouth was open, she was taking mm-hmm. her last breath, um, very, very shallow breathing, um, just, uh, you know, on the verge of death. So I think we were in the room with her maybe 15 minutes when she passed away. So, um, and and I can honestly say these the nurse, the girl nurse, acted shocked. She just couldn't believe that she had died. She she just couldn't believe it. She acted like, um, you know, what could have happened to her? And so, um, so we we go out to the nurses' station and we start talking to them. And of course, they start in. Well, overnight she got agitated, and we're like, "What are you talking about?" And they said uh, she got very agitated. We don't know why, but she started throwing her bed sheets off on the floor. She threw off her blankets. She threw off her pillows. She took off her clothes. She was extremely agitated. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, my husband and I, being uh, naive at that point, we should have asked them exactly what did you give her. But all they said was that she had become agitated. They had given her something and that it had calmed her down, and she went to sleep. Well, it was true. They put her to sleep. They gave whatever they gave her within just a matter of probably two hours, and I don't know how much they gave her. I don't know what they gave her, but it, she was gone. Um, she, so within, a, you know, within less than uh, the 12 hours after we had seen her, it was probably about eight hours, eight to ten hours, she was gone. Um, so she went now, did you ever did you ever ask them what drugs they did give her? I mean, no. after the fact, no. Okay. They they just it's said all that so they new. they said that they gave her something to calm her down because she right. was so agitated. Um, and then I think someone, uh, one of the nurses, was talking about how some people in that condition they'll say that they want to leave the facility, and and they say that they're. And they say they want to go somewhere that they're to, that they're used to going to, like they want to go to work. I can remember one of them saying that, and I was like, "She didn't say that, did she? Because she didn't. She never worked out outside of the home." And and they were like, "No, no, we were just making conversation about what some people say. That they say, I've got to leave here. I've got to get out of here.' And they say they're going to work. Um, so no. we had no clue what they gave her. We don't know how much they gave her. We just know that they did admit to the fact that overnight, which they never told us, that she had become agitated and, uh, and you know, all worked up, throwing everything off on the floor, and they gave her something to calm her down. So, um, you know, it was... I wanna, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I just want to remind people, this was in 2005, right? Oh, 2015. Oh, 2015. Okay, yes, I'm sorry. Correct. That's okay. I wrote that down wrong. So, but the the fact is, when this happens for the first time, you absolutely have no clue that what they just did is murdered her. You ha- you suspect there's something, but you know how many of us actually go and get a toxicology report? You know how many get the medical records? These are important things to get, but when it happens, you're in such shock that you don't know what action to take. And you know, and, and the other part of this, um, you know, after after the, after she passed away that same day, um, we went over to her assisted living, and all the people that lived that worked there were like, 
oh, you know, how Shirley, um, you know, when is she going to come back? And we were like, she passed away. And they were like, what are you talking about? None of them thought, none of them could have even imagined that that would happen. Um, I mean, they, you know, they they were there seeing her all day long. They were in, in and out of her room. Um, you know, uh, they they were take they brought her her medicines. They came in her room and talked to her. Um, they they had seen her for years, and they were just shocked. And we even had one of them say, "Well, it doesn't surprise me." And I was like, "What are you talking about?" And they said that the Elizabeth House, in our mind, is known as the Death House. And I said, "Why do you call it that?" And they said, "Because anyone who goes there." will never come out alive. Mm-hmm. And they right. and I mean that was a lady who worked at the assisted living and I'm sure she had seen enough people that had gone there. But I cannot tell you the numbers of people that came up to us that said, "What happened to her? You know, why how did she die? What happened?" Mm-hmm. Um they they just honestly could not believe it. And um we could Some tune up, it. right? Yeah, a tune up. That and that was their words exactly, a tune up. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's I intentional. Know. Yeah, yeah, it's it's absolutely. And when my mother um, mother-in-law went on hospice care, um, um, I you know, like I had told you, she was on it a long time, longer than um, uh, you know. I don't know what the rules and regulations were at that time, as far as how long they would actually pay for you to be on hospice. But it was presented to her. Again, my mother-in-law's mind was fine. Um, and all of our family members, unfortunately, they've all made the decision to go on hospice. They've all signed the paperwork. Um, they all mentally are fine. Their bodies fail, but their minds are still fine. And hospice preys upon older people. Um, people in a certain age range are so... Um, frugal that they don't want to spend any of their money if you mm-hmm. if you ask my mother-in-law or my father-in-law either one you know you have the money to get an aide just get an aide to come in here and help you both of them would have said no you know this is free this right. this is free they come here for free um and exactly um so they're um so in my mother-in-law's case she was convinced she died in october she went on hospice care the prior the previous December, so she went on hospice care December 2014, and when we asked them, well, um, because we had had so much, uh, so many different things with hospice, um, I know in the 30 something years ago, you I, as far as I knew, you were only able to sign up for it. In that case, I thought if you had about six weeks left to live. But that had completely changed because they presented it to my mother-in-law that, no, there was no time frame that you could be on hospice. The um, the only criteria was is that your condition would not improve. So w- since the fact she had COPD and emphysema, it wasn't like she was going to get over those conditions. They were going to continue, and eventually they would continue to deteriorate. And they just told her that... Um, you basically can stay on it forever. We can keep getting it re-upped because your condition is not going to get better. And in the assisted living, she got two showers a week. They helped her get two showers a week. 
and they, again, presented it to her, you will get a third shower. And she thought that was awesome, you know. Right. Um, and she didn't have to pay for it. She didn't need a, you know, a $20, $25 an hour person with a minimum number of hours to come into the facility and help her get a shower, and she thought that was great. Um, and, and she didn't have to pay for it. And basically everything with hospice, they say, is free, you know. If you need any kind of supplies, it's going to be free. Um, your medications are free. Everything is free. And in a 80-something-year-old person, that sounds great um, because most of them, if they do have any resources, you know, unfortunately, they want to save them. They want to save them. Uh, I don't really think it's so much for themselves, but they want to, you know, leave something to their children or to their heirs. Um, and they don't want to waste the money on themselves, and it's it's such a shame. But my father-in-law was the exact same way. Um, he, well, they he, grew up in a time frame where money was tight, and they were frugal. And it was save today, you know, don't spend today, put it aside, put it aside. That's and My parents were the same way. So I, I want to mention something that you, you said a while ago about how much money it cost, and you didn't know how she stayed on so long. There's an aggregate cap in hospice. Um, for this year, they pay $31,297 per person. So if you have 10 people enrolled in, in a particular hospice, you know, that hospice, then it would be 10 times that um, almost well, – that, $31,300, let's say. And if one person goes in there and they're under hospice for 10 days, then they've only used 10 days' worth of that $31,000. Okay. If your mom was in there, your mother-in-law was in there for, you know, a couple of years, then she wasn't caught, as you already said, they, she did a lot of the things for herself. She was living in assisted living, which she was privately paying for. So all they had to do is come in there. They didn't really have to do a whole lot for her. So she wasn't a real big expense, but they were still making money. They were still getting paid money. So if somebody dies earlier, then that amount of money is kind of put aside in a pot, and then they're using all that money. If they get to the point where they've used up all of the 31000 per person, then they're in trouble, right? So that's how they you know, want to get rid of a bed. But if you're a patient and you're not causing them a lot of problems, you're not giving them any grief, they're not having to do a whole lot for you, they're still going to get that money. So it's an aggregate cap each year, and every year it goes up. Which, which, so she, that, didn't cost, which she didn't cost them that much because the nurse would come. Um, usually the nurse would come, I can say, once, maybe once a week, once every other week. And, but mm-hmm. basically the biggest, the biggest benefit she got from that was the aide. The aide who would come and give her a shower. That, you know, that, right. that lady spent more time with her than the nurse ever did. Um, that, right. You know, she a shower. A, yeah, a shower. And that, a shower. I, I'll never it's forget sad. that. I mean, and, you know, my mother-in-law was like, it, when they first approached her, she thought it was horrible because she had dealt with um, hospice in the past, and she, I don't really think she had much use for them. Um, and and I think you know when you when they approached her, she was like, "I'm not dying." She literally would never have said she was dying if she even was. She mm-hmm. she like I said, we all thought she would be alive for forever, um, and she thought that. Um, so, but 
that just that promise of another shower was enough to entice her to to sign right along the dotted line. She exactly. Was, uh, you know, she was fine with doing that because um, she looked at it as a win-win for her. She's going to get something for nothing. And, but they you know, trust them you know, because we've we've been taught that they're compassionate and they'll do no harm. But that is not the way it is today, and and hasn't been for many years. They do harm people. It's a culling of the elderly and the disabled. Mm-hmm. But we're taught to trust them. And what we're saying to the audience is um, we were mistaken, and it's cost us our loved one's life, and we don't want it to cost other people. So the best thing to do is to avoid them and don't no, listen to their like, lies. Like the plague. <laughs> I can, oh, exactly. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's absolutely the um, and and unfortunately, um, which we've seen in uh, in 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 both of these cases, when a when a person gets uh, to a certain point, um, you know, um, it used to be your family doctor was there for you from the you know if you had an old timey one, it might be from birth to death. Um, they they were they came to your house. They um, they checked up on you when you went into the hospital. They would come and do rounds and they'd see how you were doing. And then when all that changed and you went to the hospitalist scenario in the hospital, your family doctor. Um, I don't know that most were more than happy to turn you over to someone else. But um, but in in the majority of our family's cases that have gone under hospice care, it's it's been on the suggestion of the family doctor or the specialist. Um, you know, um, I really can't do anything else for you. Um, you need to go under hospice care. Um, and so where you used to have that personal connection where you went to someone for years and years and years and they were looking out for you, a lot of them now are more than happy to just turn you over to um, to an organization. Um I don't know if it's because they don't want to have to deal with the end of life. I'm not sure, but they're more than happy to do that. And it's uh, it's very, very sad because a lot of times you have a good connection with your family doctor or your specialist. Right. You've probably been seeing them for decades possibly or, mm-hmm. you know, um, you've definitely put your trust in them. And, and then um, I feel like when you need them the most, they're no longer there for you um, because – Basically, once you go under the care of hospice, your doctors end. Um, you right. don't see them anymore. They don't write your prescriptions. They, they don't. They, you don't see them. You don't go for appointments. Um, you know, it's it's that ends, and and it's a shame because um, you've you've put a lot of trust in them for your care, and then um, next thing you know, they're they're not there anymore. So it's it's a sad situation. It definitely is. It is. So um, tell us about your father-in-law, what what happened with him and when, Okay. And what were his um, ailments. Well, um, unfortunately, his story is, uh, in our mind, if, it, if possible, a million times worse <laughs> because we already had seen what happened to my mother-in-law. So it was like, um, okay, this is not going to happen to him. Uh, nothing will happen to him. He, uh, you know, this this is this is not going to be the same, the same scenario with him. And um, unfortunately, my father-in-law um, was uh, had turned 88, and he was going to a cardiologist um, every three months, and they were watching a valve that they needed to replace. 
Um, he had actually had um, uh, abdominal aneurysm surgery, came through that fine, but they were watching this um, heart valve that they wanted to replace. So uh, uh, let's see, I guess it was November of uh, 2019, which was before the pandemic, um, the doctor said, well, I think it's time to replace that valve, so we're going to go ahead and do a heart catheterization on you, make sure everything else is okay, and then we'll set you up for this valve replacement. Because um, my father-in-law, um, up until maybe he had um, he had actually fallen and broken his hip, um, and you have never seen anyone recover from that. I've never seen anyone recover that quickly. Um, he went to a, after he had his hip, he didn't get a hip replacement. They repaired it. Um, after he had that done, he went to a nursing home and was supposed to stay there for six weeks of rehab. Um, he got up within two days of getting there and, like, called for a cab and wanted wow. to go back to his apartment. Um, and we were like, no, you, you have to stay here and do rehab. And, I mean, literally, he recovered from that incredibly quick. I've never seen anyone. So this happened um, about a, it was like this was February of 2019 when he broke his hip. He was still driving. Six, seven months before that, he was still playing 18 holes of golf a couple of days a week. So he was um, actually pretty good shape, even though he had this heart problem. He -hmm. was still in good shape. He played um, just mass quantities of golf. Um, and, uh, And But anyway, so he fell, broke his hip. Got the hip hip fixed, and uh, and I honestly don't think he was in rehab for a week. We talked him into staying that long, but he was supposed to stay there longer than that, and he refused. Ended up going back to his apartment. So, um, so anyway, so you know, fast forward to this with his heart. They do the heart catheterization on him, and uh, they determine that he not only needs a valve replacement, but that he also has major blockages, and so. The doctor said he's not a candidate to have this done. There's nothing I can do for him. Um, this, you know, there's nothing I can do to repair this. And so he comes out and tells us this, and we were like, well, you know, don't, um, don't tell him until we're up in the room. And uh, so we, we, by the time we got up to the room, the doctor had already told him. Um, I don't know how doctors are in some of y'all's areas, but we've had multiple incidences here where. They're just awful. They're, I'm sorry, but they uh, they have no bedside manner like they used to at all. He actually told my father-in-law that because of his age, which was 88, that he had already lived longer than 99.9% of the rest of the men in the world. Oh, and geez. we were just like, so, you know, this is the cardiologist, and that he had been going to every three months for years, just waiting for the opportunity to get this repaired. He thought it was just going to be a, I don't think he thought it was going to be nothing, but he thought mm-hmm. he was going to have that opportunity. Um, so, Well, he didn't well, expect if somebody to tell him, hey, you know, you've lived past your life expectancy. Oh, yeah, and that's I mean, basically that's, what he told him. You know, you've right. already lived so long, you know, because you know, my father-in-law was just shocked. You know, he's like, I don't understand. You know, I thought we were planning to get this fixed. And uh, and and now it's you're not you're telling me it can't be done. So so anyway, I want to so, add too that your father-in-law was born in 1931. Yes, and he was in the Air Force, and he had also served in the police field for years. Yeah, and so he served his country, 
and this is how we treat those who serve our country. Yeah, yeah he, he actually retired from the Air Force. Um, his entire career in the Air Force was air police. Um, even um, back during the uh, missile, they, he, he, part of his job was on the uh, missile silos patrolling them in Montana. Um, he used to talk about, you know, it was bitterly cold there, and that was part of his job. He also was on the um, DMZ in Korea, um, so in Thailand. Uh, he, he was all over the world, but he actually retired after 20 years. And then um, after he got out of the Air Force, um, he went to uh, back to where he was born in Kentucky, uh, worked for the state of Kentucky, and he even was a sheriff in a small town there where he uh, was born. So, um, so a, a big portion of his life was um, was in was in uh, law enforcement, and right. um, you know, um, just uh, the you know, I can honestly say the guy would have done anything for you. He was a uh, very good natured. Um, you know, really smart. He could uh, build things, fix things. Um, just an overall, you know, great guy, and uh, and and um, and an avid golfer. I can. <laughs> I think you want me to put that in there again because he literally <laughs> loved playing golf. Um, they lived in Florida for a while, and I think he played 18 holes like every day of the week. He loved playing golf, and he had a couple of holes holes in one, and you know, he just he just loved that. But um. But, but anyway, so the, the cardiologist, you know, tells him there's nothing he can do for him. Well, my father-in-law was living in a retirement community, but he had his own independent apartment. Um, two-bedroom, two-bath apartment. Um, his wife had passed away, and um, so he was living there, um, you know, by himself. And that it was a big apartment, had a full kitchen, um, and uh, he did all of his own laundry, uh, the only thing that the place did for him was they did they did his linens, and um, they they came uh, once every two weeks and they would vacuum and dust and things like that. But everything else he did himself, and he was on the third floor. So even though um, the dining room it, they had a really nice dining room, even though it was on the ground floor, he would still walk to the elevator and go down and eat um, his meals, except for breakfast that he fixed himself and. I'm talking like, you know, biscuits and gravy and he drank tons of coffee, so he was um you know, he was he was used to preparing breakfast for himself and and he stayed stayed really active. Um he was uh you know, he 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 stayed active even with this that was going on with his heart. So so anyway, so the doctor tells him, you know, there's nothing I can do for you and so of course, um, you know um, the reason why you know he was planning on having this done was he was having some symptoms, and symptoms being not excruciating chest pain, but he was having some discomfort. And uh, so you know he thought, well, okay, it's time to have this fixed. Then he comes to find out he can't do that. So um, so after the doctor tells him this and he gets discharged from the hospital, the doctor tells him that he thinks that he should go under um, palliative care. You know, which is like. I think he told my father-in-law it was like pain management. You know, it was learning to right live before with, hospice. Yeah, you know, it's like learn to live with your limitations. You know, um, you're you know you're going to have some discomfort, so this will help you get through this. You know, they'll they'll help you. So he he signed up for that himself. Again, his mind was fine. There was nothing wrong with his mind. 
he signs up for it himself, and he was on that super briefly. Um, I'm thinking maybe like two weeks. And uh, so next thing we know, um, he gets approached to go under hospice care. And, of course, at this point, you know, it had been um, just a few years since my mother-in-law had passed away, but since we had had so many bad experiences with hospice, um, my husband was just adamant about him not doing it. He he tried and tried to talk him out of it. But, again, they came to his apartment, the state, and at this point, I don't remember them having social workers the entire time, but not only did a nurse come, but also a social worker came. And, uh, and so, again, wow. they presented this to him. Um, you know, this is going to be great because, see, he lived independently, so he didn't have anybody that was coming in there helping him get a shower. He didn't have that at all. He didn't have anybody that was helping him with medication management, and even that with hospice was extremely short-lived. They would order the pills, but my husband had to help him fill his pill boxes. Um, they they really didn't, they weren't there to give him his pills. Um, they didn't put his pills in the box. All they did basically was just order them. That, that was all they did. And uh, so, um, but, but again, they told him, they said, you know, you'll have somebody come in here. They'll help you get a shower. And he occasionally would have a fall. You know, he had had the, the fall where he broke his hip. And so he was, um, I wouldn't say scared, but he was cautious when he got into the shower. So he was like, well, this, this sounds like a great thing. And he had a shower. He didn't have a tub. He just had a step-in shower. Um, but even with bars and stuff on it, I think it gave him like a um, kind of like a security blanket that he'd have someone there. Sure. They didn't really give him a shower, but they stood there while he took a shower. Right. Um, you know, he right. forgot soap or he forgot a towel. They handed it to him. And uh, so I think that gave him a sense of security because since he lived independently, um, the facility didn't have people that came in and did that. They didn't have that at all. And uh, so, so again, here he goes, um, signs up for it. And I'll never forget, um, you know, hospice has what they call a, quote, comfort pack. Um, it's just basically a bunch of pills that kill you. Uh, that's all it is. It's, uh, You're right. Uh, it's just a box of narcotics that you. I think they keep. They tell you to keep them in your freezer or your refrigerator. refrigerator. Yeah, you keep them somewhere. Um, and 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 then if the time comes and your family member or yourself is in distress, you take whatever's in there and lights out. And so right, that's exactly right. Um, and and so you know, real comfort. Um, but but anyways, my husband knew what it was, and so he goes over there. And of course, the hospice nurse is there, and they're signing my father-in-law up, and she starts in on this comfort pack and you know, and what to do if my father-in-law ever got in distress and my husband was there. And he was like, no, I'm not doing that. I, there's no way I'm not doing that. I'm not giving him that. Um, you know, I, I'm not doing it. And uh, so the thing sat in there, um, but we, but he, he, was, he told that lady there was no way he was going to, he was not facilitating that at all. He was not going to do it. Um, his sister, when she was under the care of hospice, it took three comfort packs for her to finally pass away. And um, they were shocked. She was a big lady. She was over six foot tall. She was very heavy. And her daughters um, were more than happy to give her what was in that box. 
and keep ordering more until she went to sleep and never woke up. And um, because we'd had so many experiences with that, we were like, you know, he was like, forget it. So mm-hmm. anyway, so they, they signed my father-in-law up, and this was uh, toward the end of February. And again, he's in this independent living. And then, of course, um, so he was having some some mild discomfort. And uh, so first thing they tried to give him, he wasn't taking any pain medication. First thing they tried to give him was morphine. And he said it made him feel terrible. So um, to make a long story short, I have all the hospice records, so I know exactly what they prescribed when. And um, so it's it's in the records. It says they, they tried to give him morphine. He said it made him feel funny, it made him feel sick. So they discontinued it. It was all within about, about a one-week period. Told him he didn't like it, didn't make him feel well. So they ended up starting him off with, um, as needed, um, 2.5 milligrams of oxycodone. That was what he was getting. And and it was um, he didn't even have to take it routinely because it was just when he started having some chest discomfort, he would go ahead and take that. Um, the only thing else that I can remember him taking that you, I guess, could consider a narcotic, you know, he took, like, cholesterol medicine. He took some other um, some other different types of pills. Um, but the only thing else that he actually took that um, that he he sometimes at night he'd have trouble sleeping, so I know he took a low dose Valium, and that was it. That was his only um, only types of narcotics that he took. Um, so anyway, so they had that they had that on there for him. If he needed it, he could go ahead and take the two and a half milligrams of Oxy, and that was it. And uh, so um, so that that went on for for really quite a while. He. Um, he was able to manage his pain and uh, and you know his discomfort on that for several months. So so then of course the pandemic hit and um, this place um, was more locked down than any um, state prison. Um, his facility went under complete lockdown. We couldn't go in there. They didn't want the people leaving. Um, the only people that were allowed in the building, even though it was independent living, um, were either medical personnel, which included hospice, or um, the people that worked there. Nobody else was allowed in or out of that building. And they kept it locked down like that for, well, for the rest of what turned out to be his life. Um, you could not get in and out of that place. It was um, it was crazy. They they eventually, um, after a, I guess about a month, they, what they would do is they would bring the residents down to the ground floor, and they had sliding glass door, and you talk through the telephone, so that you could actually see your family member, but you weren't able to go in the room with them. They didn't allow it. Um, uh, after a couple more months went by, they had an, one outdoor event where you were standing, you know, it was it was it wasn't funny because most of them couldn't hear what you were saying. They had you so far away from your family member, they couldn't understand what you were even saying, mm. and it, it was just a nightmare. So, um, so my you know my father-in-law, um, and I can't say that he was isolated because what they were doing is they still were allowing the residents to go down to the dining room. The first month or so, they didn't do that. They they were bringing food, all three meals, up to their rooms. But then eventually they lessened that to where the residents at least could go down to the dining room. So he was still interacting with the people who lived there. And it, it's a, not a huge place, but 
there were several people that um you know that he would see and eat with they had he could eat at any table that he wanted to, but they still still were allowed to um to interact with people, so they weren't just locked away in their in their rooms um but anyways um so um I know when I had spoke with you before Marsha, I mentioned his pro right. um my my father in law um was prone to feigning um forever for you know when he got older, he would be outside just working like a dog cutting down trees or something like that, and he would just totally pass out. And they ran a lot of tests on him. Um, This was probably when he was, I don't know, early 70s, I guess. And they never really determined exactly what caused it. I'm sure it had something to do with his heart, but they never really determined it. But he would just be out working like a dog in the yard and come in the house and just pass out. And uh, so they did some tests on him and found out that he had um, a condition where occasionally, uh, you know, got more and more frequent, red blood cells would get too low in his body, and he would go get a shot of Procrit. They'd bring it back up. Um, it would help his oxygen levels. It'd make him feel better. He gave him more energy. And uh, and it, it seemed to work out, you know, good. So for years, he was getting these Procrit shots. Um, Medicare, I think you have to, I can't remember what the level is. I don't remember if it had to be. Your red blood count had to be below nine, I think, to get the shot. But he would go um, periodically to a family doctor, get the blood count counted, and they'd say, "Yeah, go down to the, you know, the infusion center and get the shot." So this went on for years. Well, um, sometime, I think it was, I guess it was probably March or April. Um, hospice said that was not going to be paid for anymore, and. We just were like, what are you talking about? He has to have that. He absolutely has to have that because one time um, his red blood cell count had gotten so low, it was like down, I don't know, um, I think it was after his hip his hip repair, his red blood count had got down to like in the sixes. And he was completely, you know, um, he was ready to pass out. He felt terrible, was having trouble breathing, and uh they had to end up giving him transfusions, so this Procrit was awesome. I mean, it made him feel good. Um, it'd bring it back up. He was fine. He wasn't passing out anymore. It was just great. It kept well, him alive. Yeah, it kept him alive. It was a lifeline for yep. him. So, right, right. So hospice told him that if he wanted to continue the shots, that he would have to uh, pay for them himself or he would have to drop out of hospice. So... One day, my husband and I uh, get this phone call that we have to go over to the facility to, to where he lived at his apartment and have a meeting with the social worker and my father-in-law and the nurse. And of course, it wasn't it you know, wasn't face to face. He was in this lower apartment, and the, so the three of them are sitting in the apartment, and they're all saying that he's not going to take this anymore. And I just, I was like, what are you talking about? You've taken this for years. Why would you decide this? And he said, he he started yelling at me, and he was like, there's no proof it's ever helped me. And I'm like, you're, what do you mean you, there's no proof? You You took yourself to the doctor to have that checked because you knew it made you feel better. You could tell when it was getting too low. But those that social worker and the nurse had convinced him 
that there really was no proof that that had ever helped him. Right, manipulation. Yeah, just, oh, it was, he didn't need that. It was fine, you know, he didn't need that at all. Um, So my husband, you know, we're arguing with him, and it was hopeless because he was, he got really mad at us. He got mad. He was like, you know, I don't need it. I don't need it anymore. Well, I know why he said that. I know why he said that because, first off, I'm sure he didn't want to get out of the care of hospice because they were helping him with a shower. And Mm -hmm. secondly, he He didn't want to pay for it. He did not want to pay for it because it was going to be, um, I don't remember, maybe one to $2,000 for the shot. And he, he did not want to pay for that out of his own pocket. So he just opted to discontinue that. And we were, you know... But I can, I'll never forget the three of them sitting there with him mad, um, mm-hmm. you know, telling us that there was no proof that ever helped him. <laughs> um, hey. Yeah. So, 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 anyways, um, so we, you know, um, another month or so goes by. At this point, uh, like I said, my husband was filling his pillbox, um, and and the way he had to do that was hospice would call in the prescriptions my husband would go pick them up um he would the security guard in the building would have to go to my father-in-law's apartment get his pill box bring it down and my husband had to sit outside and fill the pill box once a week um because he wasn't allowed in the building so um you know he talked to his father almost every day on the phone but as far as actually seeing him in person that was difficult because facility would only facilitate it occasionally they weren't about to let every resident come down and you know have a uh where you could see your family member but you had to talk to them through a telephone they weren't about ready to do that every day because they didn't have the staffing for one reason and some of the people were not that ambulatory so they would have to bring them down in a wheelchair or something in order to have that happen so um, so this went on, you know, let's see. So this, this is, of course, this is right in the beginning of the pandemic. So um, I guess sometime around the middle of May, my father-in-law started having some more discomfort. At this point, he's still just taking two and a half milligrams of, uh, of the oxycodone as needed. That was his only pain medication. Didn't take anything else. Didn't take anything for anxiety, but he did take, I know, the Valium occasionally to help him sleep. But that was it, and uh, he didn't take anything else, um, no Ativan, no morphine, no um, no nothing else. That was all he was taking. And uh, so uh, comes up to the um, the middle of May, and uh, he um, was having some more discomfort, so the nurse calls my husband. This He basically had the same nurse the whole time. If she was gone for the week or on vacation or whatever, Somebody would come and fill in for her, but he basically had the same nurse, same social worker the entire time. And and she communicated with my husband. She would call him up and say, you know, your father's doing this, your father's doing that. And, you know, then he would call my my uh, father-in-law and say, you know, you know, she said this, she said that. And sometimes he would agree with it and sometimes he wouldn't. And then they, my husband and my father-in-law would discuss, you know, whatever was going on with him. And uh, so, um, so they decide that they're going to increase his dosage. So this was um, of the oxycodone. So this was the middle of uh, of uh, May. And and um, another thing I can say about hospice: if anybody's ever had any contact with hospice, 
we have never, ever, ever seen a hospice doctor. Never. Um, they don't. You you will see the nurse. You will see the social worker. You will see right. the aide. But never ever does a doctor ever see your family member. At least in all the cases that we've had with hospice, we have never met the hospice doctor. It's not. And like, how is uh, he signing prescriptions? Yeah, they sign them. They sign right. them, but they go by what the nurse tells them. Exactly. Um, it's just so if you have a terrible nurse or a, 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 a you know an incompetent nurse or a criminal nurse that that you know they that you never they never see the doctor the doctor never checks the person they go 100% by what the nurse is saying so um so the we have the hospice records this was so crazy um the nurse calls the doctor and the doctor writes a new prescription for my father-in-law and it says 5 milligrams oxy oxycontin oxycodone I'm sorry oxycodone um, four times a day. That's what it says. I have the hospice records where that was done on May 19th. On May 20th, the doctor changed the records to 10 milligrams four times a day. And so, um, of course, we didn't see this till after the fact. I mean, we had to, mm-hmm. we had to get these records after my father-in-law passed away. We had never seen this. And in the notes, it says, the nurse said um, that she wasn't even sure he'd be able to take five milligrams four times a day because that was a pretty big increase from where he was just taking it as needed to now he was going to take, you know, twice as much four times a day. She was concerned that he might fall or it might make him too sleepy. But within he one might day, out. Yeah. So within one day, though, the doctor changed that. It's in the records. And so... And then it's also in the records where the nurse said, that's too much. He won't be able to take that much. So so this, this, so this, he starts taking this about the last week of May of 2020, and that's what he started taking. That's what my husband was filling, was five milligrams four times a day. He would put it in his pill box. And, and it did make him, he, he wasn't having falls at that point, but it was making him definitely more sleepy because a lot of times, when my husband would call over there to talk to him, he, he'd he say, you know, what are you doing? And he was like, oh, I fell asleep in my chair. He was watching TV and fell asleep. So it definitely was having an effect on him as making him more drowsy, more drowsy during the day. So during June, he he continued to take this dosage, and occasionally when the hospice nurse, his normal hospice nurse would be off, um, the um a fill-in nurse would call and ask my husband, and we have um, the records show every time a nurse would call my husband when they would go see my father-in-law, they'd ask him to verify what his dose was, and they all would write, they would write this down in their notes, five milligrams four times a day. They all said that. They all had that in their notes. So there was no discrepancy in what he was taking. They all said that. So, now, Ken, um, let me ask you a question. Why did they decide to change him from 2.5 to 5? Um, it, mainly I mean, I understand he was, he was having, you know, more pains in his chest, but it wasn't like a constant pain, right? Um, it, no, I think it was, I think mainly it was kind of scaring him more that he was having more pain. I don't know that it was, 
incredibly severe or anything. He never said that it was, but I think he just was having more discomfort. And I can imagine he was, I, I mean, I would just imagine he was scared, you know. Um, you know, yeah. here, um, you know, he he had made it many more months from when they'd done the heart cast, but I think at this point, uh, you know, I'm sure sitting in, alone in your apartment, he was getting probably a little more scared. Mm-hmm. And I don't no know contact. that. No contact. Yeah. And I don't know contact. that he. Nece- I don't know that he necessarily needed it. Um, maybe he did a little bit more. But again, even the nurse was concerned that the five might be too much. And she mm-hmm. absolutely told the doctor that ten was. You know, that was ridiculous. Ten was. You know, it's in the notes. It's in the hospice notes that she told the doctor. You know, I don't know why you did this because there's no way he can take ten. He's just starting five, and five may be too much. Right. Um, and, and it's in the notes. That's that's the part of it that's such a killer because it's actually in the hospice notes that we got after the fact um, that, that they were going back and forth with this, and that's what they said. Um, so, um, so he you know, he goes through the month of June, and my husband's filling his box, and he's putting the pills in there like that. So... Um, I guess it was the last week, third or fourth week of June, my husband goes to pick up um, his prescriptions, and the prescription said 10 milligrams four times a day, and that's what had been filled. So he immediately calls the hospice nurse, and he says, um, "What you know, this is not right. And she said, oh, well, just... Just ignore that. Just keep giving him what he's been having. That's just a mistake. So this is this is like I don't know a week before he dies. So just just ignore that. It's just a mistake. Don't do that. You know, um, just just give him what. Um, and I, th- this may have been text message because I also screenshotted all these text messages between the two of them going mm-hmm. back and forth where. My husband would either call her or text her. If she didn't respond, he would text her. And so I, I screenshotted all this stuff, um, you know, after the fact so that I would have proof of the fact that there were actual conversations. Sometimes they were emails. Sometimes they were the phone calls, of course, are more difficult because there's no record of them. But text messages were obvious that she would say, you know, oh, don't do that. You know, just do what you've been doing. So, um so this was like it was toward the last week of June, and and she was like, "That's wrong. Don't do that. You know, don't give him that." So um, anyway, so the the week before he passed away, the weekend before he passed away, um, he had a um, fall, and uh, he he'd fallen in his apartment, and again, this was a few days. It was not quite a week before he died. He had fallen in his apartment, and the security guard went in the apartment. They helped him get up. He had a few bruises on him, but he wasn't knocked out or anything of that nature. He didn't hit his head, but he did have some bruises. So his regular hospice nurse was not available that weekend, so they sent someone else. And uh, again, in the records, the hospice records, this nurse who had never seen him calls my husband and said, you know, I'm looking through his pill box. Um, I see here that, it, you know, he's got these um the pills for 10 milligrams, but she said after looking in the pill box, that's not what he's taking. They're cut in half. 
And my husband said, that's right, that we don't give him 10, he gets 5. You know, we don't give him 10 milligrams at all, he gets 5 milligrams. That's not right. And she wrote in her notes exactly what he was taking. So um, so this was on Saturday. So Tuesday, um, you know, my father-in-law, who's still in his right mind, still making his coffee, still fixing his breakfast, the um, the uh, the assistant uh, independent living actually had brought breakfast up to him. So this was Tuesday morning, June 30th, brought breakfast up to him. My father-in-law takes his coffee and goes into his computer, which was in his second bedroom, and is on the computer ordering belts from Amazon. Okay, so does this sound like a man who has lost his mind? Does this no. sound like a man who is has dementia? He he did online banking. That he he was perfectly capable of doing that. Every morning he checked his bank account. So he was online ordering belts from Amazon and spills coffee on himself. This was Tuesday morning, June 30th. So the first thing he does is he calls hospice because it wasn't his day to have a shower, to have help with a shower. He calls them up and he says, um, can you send the aid today to help me get a shower? And again, the facility is on total lockdown. Um, if he had called one of us, my son, um, you know, our adult sons would have gone over there and helped him. My husband would have gone over there and helped him. We were not allowed in the building. Only somebody right. from hospice or medical personnel or people who work there. So um, my father-in-law called hospice himself and said, could you please send the aid over here? I've spilled coffee on myself. And and they were like, okay, we'll try to get the aid to come. So a couple hours go by, and they decide they can't get anybody to go there. So um, this bell goes off in their head. Well, um, we can't get anybody to come over there, but we'll just take you to the Solace Center, not the same one my mother-in-law went to. This is a different county. We'll just get get an ambulance to come pick you up and take you to the Solace Center for a shower. Yeah, that's the Respite Center. I mean, I know you're naming the name of it, but it's the Respite Center. I just want everybody to know that. The Respite Center. We will come Mm -hmm. pick you up and take you there for a shower. In an ambulance. Uh, In an ambulance. And uh, I need to speed up my story. I'm saying we're I'm going along. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, you got you got 15. Yeah. So um, so anyway, so uh, needless to say, I went ballistic. I was like, forget it. You know, that's not going to happen. And I I actually got got it canceled. They were going to come pick him up in an ambulance and take him over there for a shower. My husband is like, they're just going to come take him for a shower. And of course, my father-in-law is upset because he wants to go get a shower. And I'm like, you know, no. So I actually got it canceled for a while. The social worker calls me up and cusses me out because um, she says, do you know how much trouble we've gone to to get this done? And now um, now you've canceled it. And I'm like, I don't care. So, mm-hmm. you know, I get, it, get, get into it with the um, minister at the facility where my father-in-law lives. He says, People go there all the time. It's just wonderful. It's it's excellent. You know, it's just great. So, you know, needless to say, it ends up they come come and pick him up. I was at the building. Um, 
the ambulance drivers go up to his apartment and they call me and they said, we don't understand why is he, where, where is he going? And, you know, why is he going? There's nothing wrong with him. Why is he going somewhere? And I said, he's just going to get a shower. And they were like, what? And I said, yeah, exactly. he's going to get a shower. So they um, they bring him down and he they're loading him in the ambulance and I'm standing there and he said, here, keep my wallet and my keys until I come back. I don't want to leave them up in my apartment, you know, just in case somebody goes in there. I don't want to leave leave them. And uh, and so off they take him to the hospice center. Um, well, um, my husband has text messages going back and forth between him and the nurse, making sure that they're adamant about the fact that they know what his dosage is of his medications. And she's like, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. I've already got that straightened out, know exactly what it is. So they get my father-in-law over there, put him in bed, feed him dinner. He's watching TV. Hasn't had a shower. Hasn't had a shower. He's just in bed uh, watching TV. Um, And uh, my husband goes out and talks to the nurse supervisor and says, I want to be sure that you know what he takes. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, I know. You know, I've got the list. Don't worry. Well, come to find out, there was actually an admissions list that the supervisor checked off. And needless to say, the only box that's not checked off on that list is going over medications with the family. That is not checked. I have a copy of it, and that's not checked of everything else. Um, You know, it's like, what did they bring with them, blah, blah, blah. But the medications list is not checked off. There's no proof he ever did that. He even went and looked at it. But, you know, everybody's like, oh, yeah, everything's great, everything's fine. Okay, so, you know, he, he he's in bed watching TV, eating dinner, and we leave. The next day my husband goes over there and, um, and says, um, he calls me up and he said, I need for you to come over here and, and help Dad eat lunch. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said he no longer can feed himself. He's fairly lucid. Um, he no longer can um, get in, or, in and out of bed, and he can't feed himself at all. So in less yeah. than 24 hours, he went from independent living, being fine, ordering belts on Amazon, to not able to feed himself or get out of bed. And so I immediately went out to the supervisor, and I was like, what's happened to him? What's going on? And he said, um, well, you know, we don't know, but he's had a rapid decline. Um, he's he's fading. Um, and they proceed to give us their creepy gone-from-sight book about the dying process. So this was less than a day after he was there. He was, uh, in their mind, dying. Um, okay, the, the next day comes, We he's unconscious. He's completely out of it, grimacing. Uh, barely breathing. They tell us the next day that he's um, imminently going to die. They they're not sure he, how many how much longer he has. And I I can honestly say we would never have known what they had done to him at that point, except for the fact that believe it or not, these idiots there were trying to um, give him pills with him unconscious. And my husband asked them what they're giving him and at that point realizes that they were overdosing him on oxy. They were giving him mm-hmm. 10 milligrams that he had never had at home. Every four and hours. Every four hours. Along Instead with, of four times a day. Yep. 
along with trazodone, um, uh, uh, the uh, uh, trazodone is is um, a depressive drug. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So for and, and and also come to find out injections of morphine, which we didn't know they were doing that either. And so, why? We again, we didn't know he was getting. I mean, any it's of rhetorical. This. No, yeah. I understand that, but it's why because he came over there, and that's what hospice does. You know, they, they decide they, that it's time for you to go. You know, and uh, so um, so he died. He dies that day, and 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 the day that he died, the nurse that was you know the 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 day before he died, the nurse that saw him all the time at home had taken the day off. So the next day when she comes back to work, she, you know, called my husband and um, asked how how Dale was and when was he coming back. And, uh, you know, Mike said, haven't you heard? He's dying. He's unconscious. And she was shocked. She was like, I don't understand. Well, then when my husband sees them trying to give him an overdose amount of pills, um, we immediately call the facility, and I was... At, you know, I was beyond screaming at them. What were they doing? And in the hospice records, it actually shows where the doctor changes his dosage after I called um, to from ten to five. She changed it. So you know, around noon, she changes it back to what he was taking at home. But even then, it wasn't right. She changed it to five milligrams every four hours where he was taking it five milligrams four times a day. Right. So, and, and not to rush you, but... I, um, I know. <laughs> and that's, and I mean, that's it's just so tragic that he went in there for a shower and winds up deceased. So mm-hmm. tell me what you did after that about, you know, the medical examiner, because I okay. want people to understand. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I thought, well, um, this... this I, we can't believe this has happened again. They've killed another member of our family. They've killed killed another member of our family. So, of course, this is right before 4th of July, and my father-in-law was going to be cremated. So uh, the 3rd, July 3rd, he died on the 2nd of July. July 3rd, I start calling everywhere to to make sure that he doesn't get cremated before we know what happened to him. And uh, so um, I ended up calling the medical, the coroner's office in Charlotte, which is nowhere near us, um, and they gave me the name of a medical decedent. Um, it was like a decedent affairs at our local hospital, and fortunately our medical examiner was intrigued by what had happened. So before she decided to do anything, she went and actually went to the facility, and she said she just went there as a, like a courtesy just you know, as like a, she didn't act like she was there in official capacity, and they must have told her all sorts of stuff, because when she called me up and told me that they had decided to not only do toxicology on my father-in-law, they were going to do a full autopsy on him. Um, she said that their system had a fatal flaw. I'll never forget her saying that. She said that normally when you go to that facility, you're immediately checked in by a doctor. But in the case where you go for respite, you're checked in only by the, your nurse, your home health nurse. 
so no one really goes over your medications. If they're wrong in the system, they stay wrong. Um, there's no one checking behind them. No doctor comes in and looks at the patient while they're there under respite, nothing. Um, so she said that that was such a flawed system. She said that she just she had to send them for a full autopsy. And then, you know, so, and then I also called um, the uh, Division of Health and Human Services that regulates hospice and made a complaint. And about a week later, they sent um, a woman who turned out to be incredibly lame, who did a halfway job, and she just she just didn't do didn't do much of anything. If you saw yep. what she wrote, um, that took an act of God. We ended up after the autopsy came back, which took about seven months, that showed. Um, I can read it quickly. It said that um, the relative. Um, substantial and sudden increase of prescribed narcotics, oxycodone, corresponding with the opiate toxicity in the setting of a decedent with severe cardiovascular disease and decreased renal function, then a subsequent rapid terminal decline indicates drug toxicity as a major contributing factor. And they list all the drugs that he had in them, and it said, as such, the manner is best classified as accident. So, you know, you don't have many choices on an autopsy. You have murder, mm-hmm. suicide, natural, and accident, and other. So they determined it was accident because they said that he had a mixed drug toxicity that with his heart condition and his renal impairment caused his death. Um, and then they and- were- and the, the, there is nothing, absolutely nothing that can be done because of that act that I was talking about earlier that keeps them from any immunity. You can do absolutely yep. nothing to them. And, and you know, so we, um, we tried, you know, after we got this report, we hired an attorney. We spent thousands and thousands of dollars. And, and after, you know, after we had already spent all that money, they had to do the FOIA Act request to find out what this idiot um, from the state had done, and when she went and, and uh, interviewed hospice, they said there was no possible way he could have been overdosed because he had been taking 10 milligrams for, for every four hours since May. That was a lie. Right. They also exactly. said that he was suffering from terminal, I looked it up, I, I thought it said dementia, that he was suffering from terminal delirium. That was oh. a lie. All of that was a lie. And so she wrote in the report that what I had claimed was unsubstantiated wow. and turned that into cover. Centers for Medicare. Cover so, up, cover up. So she did, she did claim that they had um, eight deficiencies in the facility. They were written up for that. But anyways, we went through this entire process. Uh, you know, she didn't even wait for the autopsy report. She did her report within one week. Um, and filed it. She didn't wait for the autopsy, which took seven more months. She didn't. Inter- she didn't interview the medical examiner that actually probably got more information from hospice than this woman who showed up seven days later. Because by then, hospice already had their record what they were going to say. Um, they yeah, already they knew what they were say because the medical examiner had been there. I'm sure that shook them up. So yeah. They already knew what they were going to do to cover their tracks. Um, she but you did 
but I want the listeners to, to understand you did absolutely everything right. And it and it's still, it, you know, they our still state, got away with it. Yeah, they still got away with it. I sent after we found out we had no case because of that new law, where they basically had immunity for anything. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the um, I I you know our attorney said basically all it's going to be is um, medication mismanagement. That's all you would ever be able to prove. And so I sent every bit of the information we had to the um, head of the Department of Health and Human Services for North Carolina. And do you think I've ever heard from her? She thanked me for sending the stuff, and that's it. Right. So because I'm, I'm they, sorry they I have no intention. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a, it's a pencil whip. It, yep. They have no intentions of doing anything to help us or to stop this because they are saving money with Medicare. And sadly, everything is coming down to saving money. It's not about human life anymore. It's about saving money. Yep. So, And I am so sorry. And we don't have time to talk about your um, your uncle because I know you were trying to help him and you lost him too. Yep. Um, but, but, you know, uh, another but, time. But, again, but, you know, uh, Buyer beware. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Hospice is ruthless, brutal. Um, they they will turn family members against family members. Um, it's it's the most horrible, corrupt, awful. <laughs> I I can't say enough bad things about them. They're on a mission. I'm with you. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're on a mission to um to uh, uh you know and and genocide. They, yep, and they're they're it, they on are, they seem. They seem unstoppable, and um, and they they have no one that seems to be watching what they're doing. Well, they OIG watches what they do. If if you make the complaint, if you get anybody, every so often they do a report, but they don't have a hammer and they don't yeah. do anything to them. And deficiencies, like you said, they said, okay, well, it's the medication. The fact is two people died unnecessarily because they gave them drugs they should not have given them. And they, gave, they did not have permission to give your father-in-law or your mother-in-law morphine. They both were highly allergic to it. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming on tonight, Deborah, and I yeah. am so very sorry. But thank you for sharing your story, and hopefully someone will be saved from this. Good night, everybody. Good night. We'll see you back in two weeks. Good night. Good night.